Welcome to The Thought Locker, a podcast that enables personal growth. So for everyone listening in, I am here with Jason Quinn from Sustainable Engineering. Jason, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You're welcome. Jason is the author of Passive House for New Zealand, The Warm, Healthy Homes We Need, uh, which is a very, very cool book, which we'll tell you how to, to, to get hold of and check out a little bit later on. But uh, the uh, I invited Jason on to come and talk about this concept of, of a passive house, why it's so important and why more of us should know what it means and, and understand what that uh, what that involves. So um, maybe there's a good place to start, though, Jason. Could you, could you try, you know, maybe explain for us what uh, what is a passive house? Yeah, so a passive house... There's lots of different ways folks like to define it, but my favorite way is it's a you design a building, whether it's a home or an office building or a hospital, so it uses the least amount of energy possible. So you want to use so little energy that you can heat, you can condition the space, both heat and cool it, through just the air you need for, for ventilation, anyways, because you already you know you always need fresh air in a home, anyways. So if you use that, if you can condition that space through just the fresh air, that's a good definition for a passive house. If you think about a smaller residential home like that, 120 square meter small three-bedroom home you might have had in your childhood. Um, so if that's a passive house, you can heat that for with a heat pump for less than the cost to run the fridge. Okay, so, so being All able to heat your home for less than the cost of running a fridge, that's, that's, that's amazing. Right. Yeah, so now obviously it's a huge house, it's different. But, but yeah, so, um, so you think about when you're going on a holiday, if you're going to go on holiday for two weeks to Rotorua, you don't turn off your fridge. You, know, yes. you, leave, you leave the jam in the fridge and you go to Rotorua and you come back. And sort of the same thing happens with your house because the energy consumption is so low, it just becomes a non, you just don't think about it anymore. So that sounds really appealing to me. And I'd love to dig into that a little bit more and what's, what's involved in making that happen. Um, but first, it'd be really cool to know, you know, how did you get into this world of passive houses? Yeah, it's uh, it's a bit of a long story, but I'll try to cut it short enough to not bore anyone. So I, um, you know. I, I'd worked in the States for a long time and, uh, in the United States, sorry. And I was uh, working at NASA. So I worked there for a little over a decade doing uh, rocket propulsion. So I was in the engine systems group. So we were designing the space shuttle replacement several times through different presidential administrations. And, um, you know, I kind of looked around. And I just had a, a newborn son at the time. I only have one son. And I was looking around and I was like, ah, do you know, is this it? Like, am I going to retire doing like paper rockets that keep getting canceled? Or are we going to build stuff? Uh, you know, what am I going to do with my life kind of thing? And I was just about to turn 40. So I was like, oh, well, I kind of believe in this climate change thing. Maybe I should take some time off and figure out what I want to do. So I retired and uh, moved to New Zealand. So I retired from NASA and shifted to New Zealand. And in looking through what I liked in my life, looking through all the books I'd read and everything, I was like, well, I did. I really like rockets, obviously. And I also really like buildings and how they're designed. And I had done some energy modeling where you take a building and you can kind of calculate how much heating and cooling you'll need. And um, so I was really interested in, it, in that space. So um, after taking a couple of years running a boatyard here in New Zealand, I um, stepped into the passive house world about 2011. Yeah, it was 2011. And I've been doing it ever since. So it was a way for me to kind of address the, the math modeling and the physics that I'd learned at NASA, as well as to try to, to attack that problem of global climate change in, uh, in a little way. That's perfect. And, and something that's really appealing to me with the, the climate change aspect and something that's got... Uh, enlightening about reading your book, covering off that the the, the aspect uh, from that point of view too. Did you um, it, when I meet 
people in real estate who are coming from overseas markets, particularly from the UK and Europe, and they come to New Zealand to look at houses, they're often shocked by the, the quality of the housing stock that we have. Did you have that same kind of, you know, <laughs> a feeling? When yeah, you yeah, I was, I was shocked. I, I bought, yeah, I bought a home and uh, I bought it for the section. I didn't buy, I was going to tear the house down and put a pass house on it at the time. And um, personal things came up. But anyways, um, and we're in it because we're in the house before we get, before we get the plans together and such. And um, we had the gas heater in the lounge running full, full power, like all the way full tilt. And uh, first of all, we were nice. We had a gas heater and not just plug in heaters in the room, but it couldn't keep the building above. It couldn't keep the room above 16. Like it, and it wasn't the coldest day of the year. Um, so yeah, I was pretty shocked would be a way to put it. So, um, you know, I've, I've been in some, I grew up in a relatively uh, depressed community in the United States with not a lot of money. So um, as far as houses go, and those houses all had pretty much all had double glazing when I was a child in the early 70s. Uh, well, mid's, well, how far back can you remember? You see, I was born in 1970, so been 1980 probably, as far back as my memories go. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so it's, it, it is a big shock. It still is a shock when you go into someone's home and you know you realize they're wearing their their down puffy jacket at the dinner table. Like, so you just don't you don't take your jacket off. It's kind of weird. Um, it's the same like coat hangers. And, you know, it's part of our, you know, kind of <clears throat> stoic nature, I think a lot of us embody where we just, we don't like <clears throat> to complain. We just, you know, we, we, we take the approach of we're lucky we've got a place to live. We're lucky we've got shelter. And, you know, we don't sort of feel like we, we have the right to more, um, which is a, which potentially sort of limits us from expecting more. Um, but that's probably a whole other story in itself. But uh, just anecdotally, I feel like, what I've observed working in property for a long time is just there's there's far more of a focus on space and location rather than the quality of the of the of the buildings. You know, people will move to a, a new location because they want a bigger house, they want more space for the for the kids to run around, or they want to get into a different school zone. But there's very little emphasis on what will this property cost to heat, how efficient will this be as a as a place to live, how healthy will this home be for me. Um, and, and this has potentially got to sort of, for want of a better word, like epidemic proportions, you know, you talk about in your book, I think it was, um, you know, one in six people in New Zealand have uh, respiratory issues, you know. Yeah, I didn't have asthma when I moved to New Zealand, but I do now. Um, right. So I had it as a very small child, but yeah, it's come back. And, 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 this, and this, you know, epidemic of respiratory illness uh, results in, uh, there's a figure you quote of $6.16 billion per year in public and private costs. So, you know, there's a, there's a cost to everybody of this lack of quality in, in the building stock. It's not just something that affects one individual house on, on the south side of a hill somewhere. It's, it's something that we all have to bear, have to be burdened with. I mean, we don't probably don't want to get too much into climate change, but it's a, uh... You know, there's, <laughs> you know, in, in, you know, from the United States, right? So we, we talk about in the United States culture, we talk a lot about, you know, uh, privatizing benefits and socializing costs. And the idea is that basically if there's a gain to be made, you want to make that part of your, your gain, like your private company or your private person. Mm. But if there's a cost, you want to make sure all society pays for it, right? Mm. So um, that's very much happened here in New Zealand with housing quality and the health we get from those buildings in that all the gains from making the house pretty go to the individual. But all the costs of those health impacts upon families, whether they're tenants or homeowners, um, get spread across society because of our healthcare system, which is still a hell of a lot better than what they have in the States, but let's not go there. Um, yeah, no, no problem at all. Well, if, if at any point you want to talk more about climate change, I'm definitely keen. <laughs> well, one thing 
I was going to ask you. So in New Zealand, we we are kind of stuck with a lot of these, you know, older houses. You know, ideally you'd, um, and we'll talk about this, you know, building new, you'd focus on making sure each, each property is a passive house. But we've got all these existing homes and, you know, we, we have to try and carry on with them as best we can. I've always been focused on, you know, buy the smallest house that will give you what you need because, you know, I think living in a, buying a big house for the sake of it is just harder to clean, harder to heat. It's more property to look after. It's more um, more debt that you take on to buy a bigger house. So I've always been keen on this kind of minimalist idea towards housing, um, but not so much from that, from, I guess, uh, from the health aspect, but there's real value to it there too. So the question I was leading to is if you are a first home buyer or just a family, you know, moving to moving to a home or buying a home and you're looking at some of this existing housing stock that's out there, are there certain things that people can look for which are going to uh, help them make a smart decision around buying a home that's that's healthy for their for their family? Yes, there is quite a few things they can look for and also some things they can do even after they purchase the home. So one of the things that's happened interesting in the United States is that we have this green housing uh, real estate kind of branch. So basically what they've done is they've sort of industrialized industrialized, in other words, they sort of standardized the terms that real estate agents have to use. So in other words, in the United States, if a, if a, if a real estate agent tells you that the home is well insulated, there's actually a technical meaning for that. And right. it's not just puffery. So if you're a real estate agent, you say this home's well insulated, it means that it's above code currently, right? So if it's got a bit of pink bats in the, in the roof from 1970, it doesn't count, right? You can't say that that's a lie. <laughs> so in New, in New Zealand, that hasn't happened yet. So I would love it if people, when they're looking for new homes, that they even tell the real estate agent, hey, we'd like a warm home. For us, that means double glazing and that the roof, floor, and walls are insulated, right? Um, so even if you don't end up getting that home, at least the real estate agent knows that those things will help sell the home. Mm-hmm. But that, of course, requires the whole industry and the population is able to care. So mm-hmm. we'll see where we get with that. But as far as, so if you happen to be the family who does happen to care because you've got a, you realize, you know, your, your child's get sick and you've, if they got sick less, they'd get to go to school more. And if they got sick less, you could go to work more, which means you can make more money and not be out all your sick days every year. Um, so you're looking for that warmer home. I mean, the things you can look at are what, are what I just listed, right? You can look for double glazing. Um, that's one of the things that people like to put in homes that can be in for a long time because it's difficult to recover the cost of double glazing in a sale, um, which means obviously if you're buying home with double glazing, you're getting a bargain by definition. And we can talk more about what that means technically later in terms of when I say double glazing and that the roof and floor at the very least are insulated to current code standards and that the walls ideally are insulated as well. Um, and the walls insulation is, is much more tricky. If you have an existing home that you live in yourself and you want to retrofit insulation in the walls, you really need to have a builder or like a builder knows what he's doing or some, or a specialist look at that because when you add insulation to walls, you can make the walls, well, leaky buildings, right? So you can, if you have a building that doesn't have insulation in the walls, the walls can act like a ventilated cavity and help the building dry out effectively. Mm-hmm. So whereas if you just chuck insulation in those walls without doing anything else, you can make it worse, right? So you oh, save you on energy. Water in, but those, make, in those cavities. That's right. So you could affect durability. Okay. So, um, so I wouldn't insulate. I wouldn't, like I, I have a best friend who lives here, he lives here in Wanganui, which is where my office is located. And, um, and she bought a nice old villa and she wanted to insulate the walls because she had to replace the scrim to get fire code insul- to get fire insurance. Mm-hmm. And um, so she's already taken down the scrim anyways and can put up chips and boards. So she wanted to insulate those exterior walls. And I told her, no, she can't do that. She shouldn't do that. And um, she's actually the, anyways, she's the editor for this book. So she's quite keen on past house and she's in the middle of building a certified past house now. 
But at the time I had to tell her she just bought this house and she couldn't insulate the windows. I mean, she couldn't insulate the walls. Even though she's willing to spend the money, she had a contractor, they were already up the walls up. Don't insulate them. Because that wall, when they built them, they didn't put flashing around the windows. So those walls get wet every single time it rains okay. on the inside. And they dry out every single time it rains on the inside. And those walls will last another couple hundred years. They put insulation on those walls, they're going to have problems. So she need, if she wanted to insulate the walls, she needs to do it properly. And that's not always easy to do. How would you, would that be something that you could ask a building inspector, you know, essentially are there, yeah, or, or look at yourself, but are there flashings around those windows that'll make it, um, that'll keep water away from those, from those wall cavities? Yes. Um, you can, you could ask the, you know, when you have a building inspection, building inspector going through or your builder inspecting the home to, before you purchase it, you can check and see, make sure all the flashings are in place around those windows. Um, for example, in this house, when we took the interior lining off. You could see, you know, a five or six mil gap all the way around all the windows open to outside. Um, so water just flowed in every time it rained. Wow. Um, and it was, the whole home was built out of hardwood. So it was, you know, over a hundred years old and it'll be here in another hundred years. Yeah. Um, provided they don't insulate. It. Yeah. Cool. Would you place a real premium on say a single level design or, or a, um, the other one is how important is a roof cavity? Um, single level design. I mean, from the mm-hmm. point of view, if you've got two, three levels, you know, in chapel ceilings, it's, it's a lot harder to heat that sort of property, obviously. Um, well, I actually, it turns out that a more, a more compact two-story design is much more easy to heat, much easier to heat than, than a single level design. Cause it's always, it's like a, you know, a big rugby player versus the ballerina out in the cold. You know, the ballerina needs a puffy jacket and a blanket and the rugby player is in a, you know, he's in a, a t-shirt and jandals, right? And he's fine. Um, cause he's just got a lot, a lot less surface for volume of mass inside than that, uh, than that tall, thin person next to him, right? So, um, so just like that at home, if you've got a long, thin laid out single story design it's going to require more heat for the same level of insulation versus a more compact two-story dwelling or three-story dwelling that's more compact um so in general if i was looking at a building i would want a simple roof design so the simpler the roof design the better so like if you're going to sit down with a piece of paper and draw the roof if you can just draw like if it's just a shed roof which means it has a roof at an angle and it's just one slope and it's just one piece of metal like you could literally draw a square and that represents a roof that's good especially if it's got overhangs on all the sides. If you can draw a hip roof, right? It's got a line in the middle and it's got the four little triangles around the edge of the building and they overhang nicely like an old state house. Brilliant, right? Keeps the water off the walls. Roof is really simple to build, really simple to flash. It's not going to leak. If it does leak, you can get it fixed easy. You look at a more modern home where it's got, you know, 18 triangles, that home's going to be a lot more expensive to build, a lot more expensive to re-roof, and it's going to have a lot more leaks. And you've got internal um, gutters and things like that, which is so easy to... Yeah, if you, you start looking at internal gutters and stuff, and you uh, hopefully you have a bigger budget because it's going to be expensive. Um, so internal gutters tend to rust out. and they, if you, Yeah, so they tend to rust out if they're steel galvanized, which they were up until 15 or 20 years ago where they switched to membranes now that last longer. But, you know, when you go to re-roof that membrane, that roof that's got an internal gutters, you also can't insulate under the internal gutters very well. So you often end up with a spot where there's no insulation. So you'll get uh, mold on the underside of the gypsum board and the inside of the house there because they just can't put insulation there. It's just physically impossible the way it's been designed. Is there, in, in terms of uh, insulation in existing homes, for many years in New Zealand, it's been looked at kind of a binary thing, like this home is insulated or it's not, but in fact there's this right. wide spectrum of you know, quality in terms of you know, whether it's just some tinfoil sta- stapled to the, to, the, to the underfloor or whether it's, you know, pink bats or polystyrene or whether there's blankets covering over how, how well covered it is, whether there's any gaps like you mentioned with the internal guttering. There's certain 
yeah, qualities that people could look for in that regard, uh, especially if they're not technical. You know, a lot of people wouldn't understand, you know, our values and, and, yeah. and all the things that those entail. But um, what would you tell yeah. a, a real newbie to look for? In thickness and, well, first of all, it's like frosting a cake. You know, you want the, you want the frosting to go on evenly and the same thickness. Like you're eating a piece of cake at the cafe and it's got a big dip in the cake and the frosting's like 45 millimeters thick. Like that's not a good piece of cake. You got shafted, right? And uh, so the same thing in a roof. So insulation's that way too. You want it to be a uniform thickness. So if you were just going to poke your head up on the roof space because some crazy real estate agent pulled the ladder out for you, which they don't, not supposed to do, by the way, and let you poke your head up in the roof space, which I've done a few times. Anyways, um, so you want the insulation to be layered evenly, right? And ideally, if you're in the roof space looking, you want to barely be able to see the top of the roof joist. That's like the absolute minimum is being able to see the top of the roof joist. If the roof joists are poking above the insulation, it's not got any insulation. It's just bullshit. They're lying. It's not insulated. It wouldn't even make the code to rent it out to somebody, right? Mm-hmm. So um, the minimum insulation thickness on a roof space is 120 millimeters now. And I would say in a new house, you'd want over 200, right? Um, so in any home that's built now, I would expect a builder to put in two layers. One layer that's kind of runs parallel to the roof joist, the pieces of wood that hold the roof up, the ceiling. Mm-hmm. And that's 90 mil thick because it's how thick those pieces of timber are. And then they run another layer perpendicular to that to cover everything nice and evenly. And the cost isn't any higher because you're using just two layers instead of one. But it means that everything's covered nice and evenly. And it just, it just, it's really, it's much better. You can get like 30% more. You know, it's like, it's like having a, you know, it's like people walk around with these, well, you see girls walk around with these jackets where they have their bellies exposed. In the winter, it's like a big puffy winter jacket, but it's only half length. It's like, they're not warm. <laughs> I know it looks good, but they're not warm because, <laughs> you know, they've got this really warm thing over their, their shoulders and arms. And then they've got, you know, they've got the midriff. You know, it just doesn't work. <laughs> so, yeah, it's style. But I mean, so for insulation, you want it to be nice and even over the whole thing. So that's the roof. Um, the floor, um, if they've got foil under there, generally it doesn't last very long because it gets torn up by wind and such. Um, you can't replace foil anymore because it's too much of a, uh, well, basically you can staple through the wires and you put foil up and die, so you don't do it anymore. Um, but again, for the underside, I'd want to see ideally um, some kind of fiber bats, either fiberglass or polyester or something held in place with straps so it won't fall out. And again, you just want to make sure it's even. Um, and the floor doesn't need to be quite as thick by code, but I'd want to see something on the order of 100 mil again under the floor. Um, ideally in contact with the floor so that wind can't blow above it. Um, so those are things you can look at yourself and you're going to see a house. If it's got a, if it's got a crawl space, you know, an underfloor suspended floor, you can look under there often just to look and see, does it look tidy? Like, does the insulation look tidy? If it looks mm. tidy, it was probably done right. Mm. Um, just like good builders, when they're on site, the walls, they're not wonky. Like, even the, the studs are going to be hidden by the gypsum board are straight, and they'll straighten them, even though they don't need to, because they're proud. They're proud of their craft. So, um, so if you get a well-built home, all the studs are evenly spaced. All the insulation's even and level. You made a, you made a point in there, which is so important about the, the, just because it meets the current code doesn't mean it's optimal and we might get into this in a little bit but just talking about how you know seeking more than what is according to the building code is is something that you might want to do yeah and then the, we talked about insulation we talked about double glazing so the last one and the one I t- that's really important and it's easy to retrofit so oftentimes we won't worry about it when they're purchasing is that you can put a continuous extract bathroom fan in so um, when you put a, you know, you have to have bathroom fans in buildings now. They're required pretty much everywhere. So it's an extract fan, right? You turn a light switch on and it comes on and makes a bunch of noise and hopefully sucks air out of the building with yep. steam and such. 
Um, so you get ones that do the same thing, like you hit the switch and they make lots of noise. But when the switch is off, they're actually still running at a low setting. So they're continually pulling fresh air through the building. So it's really, really good for tenanted buildings as well. Because um, and, and there's a, I've got a good write-up on them with some pictures and a couple different models on the website if you want to talk link about to that, that later. Yeah. You can link to that, yeah. So um, they're really good for tenanted homes because basically you run, you have the electrician run it directly to the power board, so you can't turn it off without pulling a breaker. So then that means that the whole time that house is tenanted, if your tenants don't open the windows and they keep the curtains closed because they want some privacy, the house still stays dry. So, you know, it's a way to basically guarantee your, your new rental home is not going to get moldy from the tenants unless they do something crazy, of course. But, um, you know, and it's, and it's, they're not very expensive now that, you know, they're, if you're putting one in anyways, it's effectively the same cost. It's like an extra hundred dollars or something like that. Um, now there is, when you talk about continuous extract like that, you do need to watch out that there's, if you've got gas appliances in the home, you can cause backdrafting of those or a fireplace. So you do need to be careful with, with combustion appliances in the house if you're putting one in. But if you have just like a normal house where you can have a heat pump or some electric resistance heaters you plug into the walls, as crazy as that sounds, um, then you could then you could just put it in and not worry about it. So, One uh, term I wanted to talk to you about, which is this leads perfectly into what you talk about on your website, is mechanical ventilation. And yeah. So is mechanical ventilation, do you mean like an HRV, DBS type, type system or something different? <laughs> Well, it's a broader category at that. So mechanical ventilation just means that you have a fan that moves the air. Yes. So technically having a kitchen hood that you turn on and it blows air out of the building over the kitchen, that is mechanical extra, that is mechanical ventilation, right? Um, the reality is because those are so noisy, generally people have them off all the time. They don't turn them on unless they're really doing a big cook. And the same thing with the bathroom fan on. Like you don't typically turn the bathroom fan on unless you really got the place steamed up because it's noisy and unpleasant. Um, but, you know, we, you can get fans that aren't noisy. The problem is, is that people purchase fans because they're noisy, because they want the biggest fan they can buy for the same $50 or whatever it is. So, um, but you, you do get ventilation fans that are silent. Like the ones I've got, like the website are both, um, you can't hear them running. They're quieter than a fridge, a good fridge. And um, yeah, so, so mechanical ventilation to me encompasses both things like continuous extract ventilation, which is a kind of mechanical ventilation, and by continuous extract, again, what that means is it's like a bathroom fan or even a kitchen hood fan that runs at a low setting all the time to always make sure you have fresh air in the house. So when you have a cold snap and you've got, you know, you, you're short on cash, so you're trying to run the heat as little as possible, you don't want to open the windows and doors up all the time and let the cold air through, but you still need that to dry the space out to get rid of all the moisture you're exhaling and coming off your body and stuff. So that continuous, ex that continuous mechanical ventilation, that continuous extract, make sure you always have that level. So our building code, New Zealand building code assumes we have 0.3 air changes. Like every three hours, we change the air in the house 100%, right? And that's basically, if you don't do that, basically everything molds, right? Like every house in New Zealand, New Zealand will mold if, that's, if you don't do that. So, you know, maybe 0.25, you know, maybe every four hours is enough, maybe every two hours, whatever. But, it's, but that's assumed in our building code. And, um, you know, when everyone lived it, when everybody had one person at home all the time, all day, that probably did occur or something like that occurred, but it certainly doesn't happen in modern homes. Um, I think I mentioned the book. I mean, beautiful young professional couple called me up and they were freaking out because they got a brand new house, which they thought was built to a very good standard and it was molding. And it's because they get up in the morning as young professionals took showers, ran the, of course they ran the exhaust fan while they're in there, turned everything off, locked the house and went to work. So all that moisture on the shower walls was evaporating off and had nowhere to go. 
because the house is so actually, well built, it's actually trapped in there too. It's not like an older house, which has little, you know. <laughs> yeah, but even older houses, once we switched from, from uh, you know, scrim and timber strip flooring on suspended floors, there isn't enough air ventilation in even in a 1980s house that's built with gypsum board and plywood flooring or plywood subfloor. There's just not enough ventilation rate right through those homes. So unless, unless literally it's drafting your house all the time, there's not enough air from the wind, from having with the windows closed. You need to have the windows open um, or have a ventilation system. So, okay, so we talked about mechanical ventilation. So the simplest one is this, is this fan, this continuous extract fan. Or you could step into something like an HRV or DVS system is the other brand, I think I remember. And um, they, they unfortunately pull air from the roof space, which is, in my opinion, a very bad idea, and you shouldn't ever do that. It's actually not considered ventilation because it's from inside the building. So if you're pulling fresh air from outside the building and putting it into the house, that's fine. Um, they do dry the house out brilliantly when they run that way. If you're pulling the air from inside the roof space, they can cause the house to self-destruct. And I've seen some really, well, from a building scientist's point of view, entertaining photos of a house that just went from just fine to like you need to demo it inside of a year from a system wow. like that. Yeah, and there's a brands report, so it's not hearsay. Um, from from like spreading because there's too much moisture in the roof already, it's just spreading that. So around. it pulled it pulled the air out of the roof space and pulled moisture from under the house, up through the walls of the house and into the roof space and down into the house. So it took a house that was actually fairly dry and made it wet as. Um, and it was because it was a house that was built back when we had no insulation in the walls and it was ventilated that way. So it's not a um, impossible thing to do. It's not a very common thing, obviously. Thank thankfully. Because those systems are intended to make your house better, of course. No one wants to make your house worse. You know, it, you know, there's no money in making your house worse. That's a, that's it, was, a... it was just it was just shitty. You know, it's just shitty. It worked out that way. So, but um, and then you can get into something like we we often well we always recommend a mechanical ventilation with heat recovery, which is not a DVS or HRV system typically. So what that means is we have a box somewhere that pulls air from outside and puts it through the box and then it goes into the into the typically all the bedrooms in the home and the living space. And then at the same time, the box is pulling exhaust air from all the bathrooms and the kitchen area, not the kitchen hood, but the kitchen area. And basically as the exhaust air is pulled through the box, it preheats the incoming air. And with, a, with, um, with the ones we specify, they typically are um, from overseas, of course, although Smooth Air is working on some better systems. And um, those exchange heat quite well, so they can be even 90% efficient. So if you think about a cold day, it's it's, you know, it's zero degrees centigrade outside because you're in Queenstown and, you know, the air inside your house is 20 or 21. The incoming air that's been preheated without any additional power bill now is at 18 coming into wow. this thing. So, you know, you've got very little heat loss in the ventilation air. Um, and yeah. that's one of the magic things that makes passive house work. So. Where would you find one of those boxes? What would, what would someone look for to, to find a system? Oh, there's, so, um, well, you can remember the term MVHR and, uh, so mechanical ventilation with heat recovery is what it stands for. And there's a few large brands in New Zealand that are what we use in all our passive houses. So you can look at the case studies in the book, but we often use uh, Zender as one brand, Steeple Altron, Wolf. I'm sure there's more. Uh, I'll put a few links there. in the show notes to those. Yeah, there's, there's a lot. Of, I think they should just look at the case studies. Um, there's lots of different systems out there. And there. so um, almost all that, well, we always go with a certified system. So it's a system that's been certified by a, by Passfast Institute overseas in Germany, um, because some of the manufacturers are super keen to say high efficiencies that aren't real. Um, so, so it's good to have a kind of an independent standard. Um, but they're actually not that complicated to make, and certainly manufacturers in New Zealand can make them if there was demand for them. There's just been too small a demand for them to set the manufacturing line. 
but there's the manufacturer in New Zealand are quite competent. They're they're brilliant people. So if 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 you know if we had if we decided that every house was going to have one of these all of a sudden, it would be no problem with setting up factories to build them here in New Zealand. Uh, it's just not that hard. So we've got the skills. Knowledge and the demand. We've got to have the demand. We've got the skills. So if people are on a limited budget with this stuff, is there like a hit list, like a, a sort of a, a priority order you would apply to? Yeah. So as soon as you move into the house, put a. As soon as you move in, put a continuous extract fan in. Okay. Unless you've got unless you've got a a gas oven or something crazy like that, or a yeah. gas water heater that you've got to worry about, and then you need to your um master plumbers. One of the master plumbers will look at it and tell you if you've got a backdraft problem. Okay. But um but that's what I would do first thing. I mean, your other choice is if you can't afford it is to just get safety stays on the bathroom window and leave it open until like forever. Just never shut it. Like yeah. just get a piece of timber and literally screw it open, you know, a hundred mil or so, so nobody can sneak in and uh, just don't ever close it even when you're taking a shower. So that's about the only other way you can do it. Um, so the first thing we do is deal with ventilation. And then after that, you know, you can talk about roof and floor insulation. And then after that's probably window joinery, um, whether it's brand new windows or double glazing. Perfect. That, that's a, Awesome amount of information. It, it, this is probably a good time to switch to talking about new houses. I imagine it'll lead us quite well. Into- yeah, yeah. So I mean, the other, I guess, before we completely switch, there's a um, we talk about passive house, and passive house is this standard we talked about, which is really low energy use. But for retrofit buildings, we have this other standard called Enerfit, which is just a it's a it's a weird whatever. Just it's a, it's just a name. Let's call it a name Enerfit, and it's uh, it stands for energy retrofits in a. And um, so it's a pass-off standard applied to retrofits. So we've got a few projects at our company working on for retrofitting buildings, um, some really flash houses as well as some small modest homes. And it's um, if you're going to do a full gut rehab of a house, it makes very good sense to do at that point. Um, otherwise, it's really difficult to do. Um, we do have a, there is a retrofit process you can use where you like you're going to say, okay, well, I do want something like a pass-off house because I'm going to live in this house forever. So. What we do is we do a we do a model at the front to say, well, this is what you need to do to get the most out of your house to optimize the insulation, like you said earlier. And then we say, okay, well, you're gonna do this, but you know, with the roof insulation, we'll do that when you need a roof because we need access. So when you need to re-roof in 15 years, we'll do the roof. Okay, but you need windows now because the window joinery is just horrible; it's just falling out of the building. So when we put windows in, we're actually gonna put in triple glazed UPVC windows, which seems crazy because you have no ceiling insulation, <laughs> but when you, but everything, you know, you're putting in the right windows. So when you finish everything, it all adds up to the right number at the end. Um, so kind of with pass files, whether it's retrofits with used buildings or with new buildings, the idea is you start with what you want in the end and you build a computer model, which says, well, I need these kind of windows and this kind of insulation because of this site and house. And that means that when you're doing that retrofit project, you, you know what kind of windows to get at the right time. So, so we've done a few projects like that. Um, obviously new buildings are easier because you can, again, start with the end in mind before you build it, um, and even change the foundation. Um, These, but, yeah, um, that, that's really cool that you mentioned that. And so is that, that sort of certification, is that it, what an amazing thing that people can, you know, look into and pursue and yeah. my gosh, what a, what a selling point if you, if you reach that point, uh, and we're able to, to advertise that to people if you ever needed to move, not that you would probably want to move if you'd built such a beautiful home. <laughs> people get, you know, things happen. I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm divorced myself, you know, I never expect to be divorced. Things happen, you know, lives, lives are real. I mean, yeah. the real world is messy. We live in a messy world. So yeah. So, I mean, if you want to think about it, a, um, a new home that's being built up in Auckland, the value is decided before it's built from the plans. He's decided that homes to be worth 12% more than equivalent house. 
there's a you know it's an architectural house as well so it's always messy on how they assign value it's a black box but roughly 12 percent more than he would have for another house wow. so that means that if you think about a home that's worth i don't know how many god it's in auckland so it's crazy money right yeah 12 percent of crazy money is really crazy that's I mean, like in, a large chunk even in wellington you know a lot of people are spending eight hundred thousand plus on a first home you know so 12 percent. you're talking what 90 grand at least yeah. so it's you're talking still a yeah. big chunk of money and that's it I mean, 80, 90 gram will go a long way to covering. Uh, yeah, that's right. Jason, I was just going to say on the retrofitting side, on the existing house side, to cover that off, one more question I thought of. Is there a certain kind of cl- like, um, you know, building material or building age that's easier to retrofit to become an, an inner fit type house or a passive house? Uh, we talked yeah. about the, the design of keeping it really simple, which is key, but is there a certain age or a certain type of cladding that is going to make it easier to, to do some of this stuff? Yeah, so generally it's it's a house on piles is easier because you can mess with the floor easily. And it's one where you love the interior, not the exterior. So if you had a really tired state house, you're going to put a re-roof on it and you're going to redo the cladding because it's got lead paint and stuff on it, you're just going to tear it off. Well, then that one is sweet. Like you could do that cost effectively because, you know, you tent it first if you've got a good smart builder because you can work in it through weather. So you tent it, you take the roof off, you take the outside cladding off, you throw the windows away. But you love the inside because the inside's got historic wood and it's been restored a little bit. That's brilliant, right? Because you can fix all the plumbing and all the wiring, insulate it properly, put another layer of timber on the outside to put even thicker insulation on, put your nice windows in, put the right, you know, you can do everything to the building, but you've kept that value of the inside being pretty good. Um, so that to me is a, is a really good choice. Doing it the other way around from the inside is really, it can be done and it's done a lot with heritage buildings overseas. And um, we're doing a few built, we're doing, well, there's one other NFIT we're doing that's from the interior, but it is much more expensive. And especially with the slab home, it's really difficult to put insulation above the slab um, and it can create lots of issues. And, and the, the NFIT certification, is that something that people can come to you guys for help with? Where, where would they go to first if they wanted to pursue? Yeah, so for NFITs, um, we've done several. There's also other certified Passfast designers in the country that can, can go to. So there's a website, uh, it's probably passivehouse.co. .nz, I think it is. I'll put a link to that. Too. I should probably check that. Yeah, let's put a link in for that one. I'm not sure if I've got the last last digits right. But um, it's uh, Passfast Institute New Zealand's got a list of all the certified Passfast designers. And um, so that's who I would talk to to do that. Um, we, we, we're we the only certifiers in the country, so we certify other people's designs as well as we do our own. And the ones we do, we get certified overseas. So every design that's certified is certified by an independent third party. Um, so I can't certify our own work, obviously, because that's not independent. So I, I love that. I love that point from the Bay you're about, you know, the, the 12%, you know, like you say, it's a black box, but just so nice for people to know that, you know, a valuer is going to recognize if you do these things to your home, it does add serious value. Um, and yeah, I just realized that was a new home architecture designed and he was valuing it so he could get the loan to build it. Yes. So, absolutely. yeah, just with those caveats, please. Yeah, no worries. That's <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So the studies I've ever seen have seen like between 7 and 10% more value assigned in California. Um, but certainly in, in Germany, for example, they haven't seen large values assessed to a house because it's certified past us. It could be because their building code is quite high already. So people don't see the huge step that we would see here in New Zealand. And it's an expectation, I imagine, to have a warm, dry, healthy home. Uh, in, I mean, anecdotally from when I've worked with, with people buying houses, like they really value a warm, healthy home. And, and more and more buyers each year were starting to ask to look at power bills and you know look at receipts for double glazing work and and really valuing things like insulation and double glazing so um you know there is 
you're not throwing money down a, <laughs> down a hole that you're never going to see again. It not only, I think, gives you a healthier home, but it does increase the value of your, of your asset as well. So new houses, this is something that you help people with a lot. Talk us through how you would typically help someone who's thinking about building a, a, you know, a custom home and they, and they want to make it a passive house. Yeah, so our main two people that contact us are either people looking to build in a home or architects working on a new home and the client said they want a, a, a thing called a passive house or they want a really energy efficient home, usually one of those two things. Um, so when, um, when they contact us, they want to, it's sometimes quite funny because the client will contact us and they want a passive house and they've sat down with the architect and they actually love the architect. Like they've sketched out a floor plan and they're really bonded and that's really important because a lot of times architects don't get paid for being uh, psychologists because they often will have to really support the couple as they're building a new home psychologically. Like seriously, it's a big deal. Um, and there's a lot of value in that. But anyways, um, and, but the architect is just like, no, no, no. If I could, I'd put single glazing and, you know, just put, put a jumper on. <laughs> so, so the, the, we're brought in to effectively to, to help them design it with the architect and, um, or the architect will want a higher performance building for one reason or another and uh, call us again. So we do typically is we take the, once they've got a floor plan and elevations done in a building site, we then build a computer model of the building and predict very accurately what the heating demand and heating load of that building will be. So the heating demand is like the annual energy bill for heating. Okay. And the heating load is how big the heater needs to be effectively. And um, we'll take the building, we'll tweak the glass and the frames and the insulation, the walls and ceiling and roof, and even the construction method to make sure it meets the pass-fast standard. Or if they decided that they're not going to go to pass-fast one or another, they're going to go to a lower standard and we'll, we'll model that for them. So we typically will do an initial initial design review where we model that building for them. And then we provide a nice graph with, let's say, five or six options. And be like, well, this is the pass-fast option we recommend because this is the best long-term solution for both you and the climate. And um, the next one back is, let's say, a low energy building certification, which you can still get third-party certified, uses twice as much energy as Passive House, um, because perhaps they've got a building which design which is quite insane. Uh, we've done ones with glass floors overlooking canyons. Um, yeah, so sometimes we do get some interesting buildings. Um, so that building could be a Passive House, even with triple glazing, because it just had some interesting features, like really long glass hallways. Um, so we'll do that initial design, and then... Um, once they pick the level of performance they want, then we go on to do detail design. We'll provide the construction details for the walls and the roof and floors because most architects haven't dealt with that um, and then support them through the consent process if, as needed. Um, so we've, you mentioned it early on, Andrew, where you said that um, if you do an acceptable solution, actually, no, we haven't gotten into this. I apologize. Yeah, so we talked about this earlier before we started recording. Yeah. So um, when you turn in a set of plans for a new building to council for approval, they have this kind of cartoon book. It's not quite a cartoon book, but it sort of is. They have this thing called the New Zealand Building Code Acceptable Solution. And it's a series of pictures. And literally the guy inside will be like, oh, that looks like the picture. I'm comfortable, right? Even if the picture means it's going to get moldy. Yeah. Like it's well known that if you install windows the way they are now, unless you've got a very good ventilation system, they're going to mold because the windows have condensation on the inside. And that's an acceptable solution, right? We know those windows are going to mold, period. Like you're going to have to clean mold off your brand new house. And there's no, there's no excuse for that, but that's acceptable. So that'll get the green tick from council as they can build that legally and they'll move on. Um, whereas if I provide a, a solution that has the windows, let's say recessed into the walls a little bit with better flashing details. And the architects looked at that and said, yeah, that's weather tight because that's their job. Um, then the council person will say, oh, that's a recessed window detail. That's not an acceptable solution book. Prove it's going to be good. 
and we're like, oh, well, like, yeah, we, but we did, we submitted this last, like last month on a house and you, we've already proved it. Can we just use that? And some councils are brilliant about it. And we're like, yeah, tick, you did it last month. It's the same thing. Don't worry about it. And then other councils be like, no, no, you got to prove it every time. That's part of the process. Um, and uh, so that can cause some headaches, but so we support them through that process and then we'll provide construction support and then finally get the building certified at the end. So important to realize that what's just in the code and what's standard is not necessarily optimal and, and, and not the best you can it's, do. No, in some cases, actually, it's bad. So you've got people that's both in, the, in, in MB and in brands, individuals, not organizations, saying that the building code is not fit for purpose. Like literally, they're building bad buildings and they're considered code compliant. So um, one thing you could, if you're building a new building and you're talking to an architect or a builder, um, you could ask them is like, are you going to be happy if the building's code minimum? Good question. Like if it just meets the building code, are you going to be happy? Because if they are happy, you probably should find a different builder and a different architect. Especially um, if you've got yourself in a position to be able to build a, a new home, you know, you, you might as yeah. well make it as good as you can. Like if you've gone to, if you're going to go through this journey of all the decisions that have to be made and, and uh, all the yeah. waiting time, you might as well have something awesome at the end of it. I mean, yeah, if you're going to build a custom home, like you're talking to an architect or an architectural designer, and you're going to have a home fit, fitted to you, you're not going to buy a group home builder home, then in my opinion, there's no excuse. And soon there will be no excuse because potentially the building code is going to change to require something like this in a relatively short span. Um, and uh, that'll be quite interesting for the industry because we've been training up people as fast as we can, but there's still, you know, we've got, what, 45 certified pass houses now out of, is it 10 or 15,000 homes a year, something like mm -hmm. that? Okay. Okay. So, so yeah, yeah, fair way to go. And and yeah, I love what you wrote in your book about you know the 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 building code uh, partly fails because the minimum standards are too low, and the industry regards them as a target to meet, not a legal minimum to exceed. So it's this framing of you know, do you see it as we just have to tick that box, or do you see it as hey, here's some guidelines. How can we? What if we're going to build this cool home anyway? How do we exceed those? How do we make it as good as possible? Yeah. I mean, to me, the thing is not just exceeding them because I have worked on some homes where, you know, the roof insulation is insanely thick. That's brilliant, but it, the building still performed quite poorly because okay. they hadn't done the foundation properly. And um, so to me, it, it's the, the big thing is with pass files, it doesn't, to me, it's, if it's a pass files or not is important, but not that important. What's important to me is you, you build it with the end in mind. Like if you want a warm, healthy home, somebody should be guaranteeing you that it's going to be warm and healthy. <laughs> um, you know, um, at least it comes up to some standard that's designed for that, not one that's designed for, if you build it like a fraction worse, it's literally illegal. Like literally, if it doesn't meet building code, you can't live in it. Like you can't build a new house that's worse than that. It's not allowed. So it's like, basically it's like, I got an F plus or a D minus. I'm not sure how it works in New Zealand. You know, I got a D minus in class. So like, does your kid aim at a D minus? I don't aim my kid at a D minus. I'd prefer you get at least a B. You know, let's not be overboard. C plus is all right. But what I mean, you know, a D minus, like that's what all the builders, like when you you see these advertising, like it's building code compliance. Like, well, yeah, because if it wasn't, it would be illegal for you to sell it to me. Oh, that's a really nice analogy. And there, so you mentioned the questions for the architect. Let's say someone's buying a, a new home and they're buying it because they want a healthy home and they're sick of having, you know, asthma or allergies and things. Um, but they're buying a house off the plans. You know, they're buying in a subdivision where they're just churning them out. Are there some questions they could ask that builder or developer to ascertain, you know, whether this is going to be a building that just barely meets the code or, or, or exceeds it? Are there, you know, 
should they look for the same things as with the existing home or are there different questions they should be asking? Yeah, they should have definitely have higher expectations. I mean, if you're buying a brand new house off the plans from a group home builder, you should have higher expectations than somebody buying, uh, you know, a 1920s box, right? Or a 1950s box. Like it should be better than that. Sometimes it's not. I mean, uh, brands tell, you know, Building Research Association New Zealand brands uh, tells us that new homes actually use more heating energy than old homes. Partially it's because you can actually heat them, <laughs> but also because they tend to be bigger and the insulation levels aren't appropriate outside of Auckland. So the building code was designed around Auckland um, to, to lower the energy use as a country. So the building code for places south of Auckland aren't adequate, like even to the current level, they're not adequate. Um, because, so if you build a home to the same building, to the building code minimums in Auckland and in Invercargill, the Invercargill home will use twice as much energy to heat if it's the same house, right? Um, because they're not, they're not set the, on the level playing field. So if you're buying a new home, the things I would say you should have is an absolute lower bar, like you won't buy the house, is it's got continuous ventilation. So that can be as simple as them swapping out the exhaust fans for ones that'll run continuously low settings. Um, so they run, again, they run silently, and then you hit the light switch and they come on and make noise. But when the switch is off, they still provide ventilation all the time. I wouldn't buy a home that didn't have those, or if I did buy them, I'd be like, well, I'll buy it, but you got to put these in. And the builder would be like, yes, I'll just do it, right? It's not that yeah. expensive. And then, you know, we can list a lot of things, a lot of like slight improvements we can look at. So the next one I would, but I'd say, let's just keep it down to two to make it easy for people. And the second one is, does it have slab edge insulation? Now you probably can't walk a slab edge insulation. Okay. So if you know, most, most, almost all new homes in New Zealand are on a concrete slab, right? You know, they pour a bunch of concrete and then they build the walls on top of that. Mm-hmm. And um, the edge of that concrete is where almost all the heat loss occurs from the slab. So when you start doing passive house, you've got insulation under the whole thing and the edge as well, because, you know, we're trying to get down to this, like, literally less energy than your fridge to heat your house, right? But somewhere between those two numbers, between now where it takes, you know, you know, it takes like an entire salary to heat your house and the one where it's like so small you don't care, there's a few steps along the way. And uh, so edge insulation. So if your home has concrete slab edge insulation, then probably they've done everything else to a much better level as well. Now... Is that something you would be able to, is it any uh, physical or visual signs for that? Or is that just something you're going to have to take them at their word that there is this? You know, uh, just take, just get in an email. I mean, just like real estate agents, if they're in writing, they're much less likely to lie. Um, and they know what concrete slab edge insulation is. So it, it's generally uh, almost always a little bit of foam with some concrete, with some board or something on the outside. And it goes around the edge of the insulation and it keeps the edge of the slab warm. Now, the reason I'd say that's the second thing I would ask for is one, it's, it's, um, it's not free. Like it's something you need to plan at the end of the start of the building. You can retrofit it, but it's difficult. But the biggest benefit is just like ventilation. It's really the biggest benefit is going to be health. So you do save on heating loss, but it keeps the edges of the carpets near the edge of the building from molding. So, I mean, you're from Wellington. You know that if you pull up a carpet in a a concrete slab house in Wellington, generally the concrete's kind of blackish near the edges of the building. Mm. That's mold, by the way. Um, Inside your house, we breathe. (laughs) So, and when the carpet, when when the house dries out in the spring, the mold spores then come out into your breathing air. So um, so if you put concrete slab edge insulation, then a concrete stays warm and you do save money. But more importantly, the edge stays dry. So you don't get mold all around the outside edge of your house okay. um, under the carpet. Um, with exposed concrete, that's not, a, not an issue in terms of mold. But with carpet, it is really a problem. So those are the two things I would look for in a new group home builder home is one, continuous extract ventilation. If it doesn't have it, tell them to put it in. It's part of the sale. And then second thing is you could look for slab edge insulation. If they've got slab edge insulation, even in Auckland, it's needed. 
um, then I would say that they probably have done most everything else right. And that's probably as many questions as they'll deal with before they shoot you out the door to talk to somebody else. Like that's for, yeah. So that's a part of the problem, right? But it's, I, I love what you said earlier on about, you know, if we just all start asking this question every time we look at a, a new a new build, it's going to create this expectation that people want this. And so that, that, you know, one good way to create change is just to keep asking these questions and keep keep asking for these features and then people will respond by adding them in. Yeah, I mean, sometimes manufacturers in New Zealand are quite keen. Like I deal with a, a door manufacturer here in, in New Zealand and they're really keen to come up with a really high performance thermally insulated door like when you can buy from Germany or something, we import them from Germany now for our past houses. And he's really keen. And he's like, I want to build that for you. Like he wants to do it. He spent some money. He hired me to do some work for him, right? And uh, and he's gone out and talked to a bunch of architects about selling his high-performance door. And he got nothing, dead crickets. Like no, nobody was even moderately interested. They want to know if he had any new color options. So, um, so he basically, he's like, I don't think I'm going to sell this if I make it for you. I was like, I didn't ask you to make it. You asked me. But um, I'm, we'll just keep importing them, you know, or we'll buy timber doors. And, uh, but because there's, because he thinks there's no interest in the market, he's not going to manufacture it at a scale where he can sell it reasonably. And because of that, nobody's going to have a well-insulated door unless they import it or use a timber one. I think it's probably a good point to, to talk about how, you know, this doesn't have to be a heck of a lot more expensive, you know? So if you sticking with the new build theme, if you go down the sort of custom road sign, you know, we're talking about a pretty awesome standard to reach here, but you know, in your book, you talk about it's not necessarily like the most expensive thing to to go about doing. It doesn't have to greatly mess no. up the cost of building. No, it depends on where you start and what you're going to compare it against, right? Okay. So, if you pretend you've got the house finished and it's a passive house, and now we're going to make it a code minimum house, we're going to take out the let's say it's in Queenstown, so we've got triple glazing, right? So we got or in Wellington with a view of the, view to the south. So we put triple glazing in because it's got a lot of glass to the south, right? Facing the facing the south coast. So we're going to take out the triple glazing and put in the cheapest double glazing we can find that's legally compliant. We're going to take out the thicker insulation everywhere, and we're going to leave the rest of the building alone. Then you might find you could take out 7% of the costs or 5%, something like that, right? And that's for the whole home construction costs, right? So that's a big chunk of money in some mm-hmm. respects, 5%. Um, but instead, if you'd taken that design that the architect brought to you on day one, which had an extra room in it, and it had a lot more glass in it. it had glass to the north as well because the Arctic thought that was important. Although there's no view, it's just a hillside. But he thought glass in the north would help with, with the heating bill. And when we ran the computer model and found out that a glass in the north doesn't do anything. So you should just put it in for some daylight and call it a day. So we've cut the glass down on the north side by 10%. Well, that 10% reduction glass in the north side probably paid for all the triple glazing in the house. So if you, if you come to us with a design, or if you come to a passwell designer, whether it's me or someone else, um, there's about 40 or so in New Zealand then you can adjust, you can look at those sort of things and rationalize the design. Okay. Um, so often I'll try to take out corners in the design. I mean, the least expensive home to build is a rectangular box and it doesn't have to look like a rectangular box. You know, I, I know folks won't have access to the book, but they can download the PDF of it. And one of the buildings in here is um, from the South Island called um, Senior Residence. And um, I'll find it here while we're talking. But it's, you know, it doesn't look like a shoebox, and it is. It's right. called Shot Over Passive House, and you can see it in the video, but I'll have you read a link to it. So the building has got a really deep facade that's got all this like pop-ins and outs, and it looks really thick and deep. It looks like it's got 50 corners in it. It's not. It's a flat box. So the Passive House designer, who's in Wellington, by the way, um, designed this to be thermally efficient. So it's flat, and the glass is all flat in that same plane. But then he built the rain screen thick. So the builder on site did a bit of carpentry, made the building look awesome. 
but the building itself is incredibly efficient and not only is it efficient, but it was cheaper to build. So he's kind of got all three things, right? He's got quality, cost, and efficiency all in one building, um, but being smart about the way the design was. Now, if you're an architect and you don't know any of this stuff, you know, you're just trying to make a building beautiful and feel good when you step into it for your clients because you love architecture if you're an architect. You can't not love it. Um, and you'd love it if the house was warm and such for the clients, but you really, you really don't know how to do that um, other than putting a giant heat pump in, which works pretty well. So to me, it's um, when we talk about cost and passive house, it's really important when we compare. Once you're building a, once you're building a custom home, you know, if you decide that you actually care about health and comfort, then you should design it for health and comfort and not just looks. But because you can see looks and you can judge looks, when you talk to the architect, that's what they hear. And it's just like if you're on a building site with a set of plans and you talk to the builder about doing additional insulation in the ceiling because you got space. What the architect hears is he just hears make it as cheap as possible every time you talk to him, right? doesn't matter what you say. Like I literally talked to builders and said, the, build, the client wants to spend more money to make it warmer. We want more insulation. So you can't swap out the bats for lower, for less, you know, lower quality bats to save money because he wants to spend that money. And he just, he, it just didn't click. Like he's been conditioned by decades of experience to all that people care about is that day one cost. So it's, so cost can be quite a, a tricky subject. So as they said, and speaking of builders, do you need a, a, a certified builder to build a passive home or anything close to that? Or, or, or can any builder do this? You just need the, the guidance from the architect and from someone like yourself to, to give them the... Um, so any good builder can do it. It's, but certainly somebody, the first time they do it will be more labor for them because they don't know what they're doing. Um, so when we do, a, we do a detailed design, we always, well, we don't always, but we usually do construction support. It's part of the package. We sit down with the builder and talk about sequencing because most of our buildings look just like a normal building when you're building it. So like they're putting the frames up on site, you know, they, get a, they pour a slab on top of a bunch of insulation. That looks different before they pull the concrete down. But that's pretty straightforward nowadays. Then when they start standing the frames, it's the exact same framing you'd buy for the house next door. Um, when they're standing that up, then they put in an air control air to keep the drafts out effectively to make the insulation work really well. So that just requires when they stand those frames up to put a few strips of ins- a few strips of membrane in, a few strips of what looks like plastic, right, on top of the frames, and then they put the roof on top. And if they do that at that time, it literally takes like 10 minutes, and the apprentice can do it, right? And if you don't do it at that time, and you want to make it a passive house later on, you can go back and tape every single one of those junctions, which might take two apprentices like a week. And in a couple thousand dollars with the tape. So, um, so sequencing is really important. So if we've got a new builder building a pass file since their first one, we'll usually pick construction systems that are very, what they're used to building. So there's small changes and we'll, um, make sure that they get, understand the sequencing when they're, when they're laying that drawing out. But even if they missed that strip, the building's still going to perform really well. It won't perform as well as a pass file would have because it's not going to have that performance level. But yeah, so, so for builders, you can use a good builder that's not done a pass house before, but they're going to have to, they're going to need a bit more coaching along the way to get there. One of the fantastic things about your ebook is that you've got examples of passive houses all around the country. And not only do you have beautiful photos and an explanation, but you've got who the structural engineer was, who, the, who did the construction, who did the architecture, who the certifier was. So that's that's a really good place for people to start. You know, they, they might be able to find something in their location already and say, okay, right, I can talk to those people and they'll know what I'm talking about if I ask for this stuff. Yeah. Yeah, especially, um, I keep mentioning Chrysler because I just did a bunch of projects there, but, you know, there's three really good uh, builders there. Actually, a fourth one's just come online that are building certified pass buildings. And, you know, so one of them is semi-retiring. He's shifting to Nelson. 
So he's, you know, he's had a bunch of people talking to his clients and he just passed them on to the next builder because they're all real tight because, you know, it's sort of like being a, you know, I used to play ultimate Frisbee, right? And I was, I was a certain level in the sport. And so, you know, I certainly, you know, those are all my mates, right? They're at my level. So builders, when they step up to certified pass files, they're not building the cheapest stuff they can legally build, right? So they're stepping up to the quality level and the performance level for their clients. So they're bringing their whole workforce up with them. And, you know, so their mates, with their, even though they're competing against those other certified pass files builders, they're mates with them because those are the guys they compare themselves with. Now, not the, not the rest of the builders that are still building as cheap as they possibly can. Um, so, so it's quite interesting to see how that camaraderie kind of builds because they've been around for this whole, well, effectively for this whole movement in New Zealand. Well, be a nice way for it to differentiate themselves too as this stuff becomes more and more sought after by the market in general. It could be a nice way to stand out from the crowd and, and have yeah. really high quality buildings. Um, this, I don't think I actually mentioned earlier on, but this book, the, the Passive House book that we, we keep mentioning, this is actually something that people can download for free, isn't it? That's right. So if you go to our website, which I'll let you put a link in, but it's sustainableengineering.co.nz. Or actually, you can just go to um, Warm Healthy Homes. So all spelled out, warmhealthyhomes.co.nz. And it'll bring you right to the webpage that brings the book up. And you can just uh, sign up for the newsletter, and then you can download a PDF. Or if you don't want to sign up for the newsletter, you can actually read the entire book online, including seeing all the case studies. And all the builders and architects are actually linked. So, um, I mean, I wrote the book along with a really good editor, but um, all the, I didn't build all these homes. So I only did a couple of these in here and I've done a, a large amount of the certifications in here, obviously, but some really brilliant architects have done these homes. So I tried to link it to their sites so you can do that. That's when people ask me who they should hire as an architect, I usually tell them to look at this book and find a house you like the look of. Yes. And then just call that architect. They can design, you know, somebody in Queenstown can design you a home in Kai Tai. Hmm. So um, it's all the same building code. So um, find, the, find the home that really speaks to you and then just call that architect. It's a brilliant quick read with lots of beautiful photos and beautiful examples and it makes it feel really accessible. And uh, it reminds me of that quote, the, the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. I might have paraphrased yeah. that, slightly, but uh, it, uh, it really makes me think of that. So what a cool message and I hope more people pursue building new passive houses as a result of this. And I also hope that uh, people put more value on on features of a property which are going to make it healthier to live in rather than prioritizing space all the time necessarily so thank you so much jason i feel like that's that's a epic amount of information to to share with people and, and i love that there's some really small wins that people can go for that make a big difference like the continuous ventilation extractor fans uh, so thank you for, for helping on the sort of micro level and also the macro level for anyone trying to put a custom house too i really appreciate that all right thanks much it's been fun